Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. I'm reading again from Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching. Yeah. We're in now, he says, not boasting of merit and not stressing cleverness, thus one prevents jealousy and quarrels. <clears throat> not concerned about possessions and not overestimating valuables, thus one avoids greed and theft not considering anything outside as desirable, thus one prevents anxiety and discord inside. Likewise, the awakened one, he renders men's hearts desireless, thereby opening them to abundance. He decreases their craving thereby increasing their powers of realization. He teaches them to put the inner above the outer, to value wisdom higher than knowledge, not to act from the outside, but from the unmovedness of their inner being. Thus practicing non-action, they find peace and realize that through non-action, nothing remains undone. What's that? <clears throat> nothing remains undone. Now, this uh, particular chapter of the Tao Te Ging is called The Mastery of Life Through Serenity. The serenity being the non-action which is the Wu Wei in Japanese. It's a Mu Yi in Chinese. Yeah. And it's what the Buddha called the middle path. Because uh, non-action is as far away, or we could say an equal distance, from a passive, lazy, non-doing as it is from the frenzy of tremendous activity. It's in the middle. Hmm? <clears throat> action through non-action, way wu way, hmm? is the way of the serene. Uh, the way of those who live within instead of allowing the 10,000 things to control them. It's a, a way of living that isn't acting from the unmoving, you know, that solid inner core, 
deceit yourself in that and then act. That's not an action. It doesn't mean doing nothing. You see, in the non-action, it is not the ego that acts, but the Tao. And you should know the difference between the two. If you think the ego is you, you have another thing coming. Jesus expressed it this way, my father worketh hitherto, and I work. Non-action. I come along after. The father worketh hitherto, and I work. And St. Paul says that this, in reference to this non-action, that this is the evidence of faith. Now, um, faith, we usually, what faith do you belong to, we say, so that one is, you know, whatever orthodox religion or tradition one is following, one has faith in it. This, this is your faith, this is your religion, this is your faith. But uh, the way that St. Paul is using it, or to my understanding, in my opinion, uh, it would be more like Wei Ning's faith. You know, when uh, his uh, uh, teacher there gave him, the fifth patriarch gave him uh, the bowl and the robe, and Shenshu was the head monk there, and uh, had decided, you know, that a long time ago, and the whole, all the monks in the monastery, you know, figured that this head monk was going to be the predecessor. And here comes this little rice chopper out of the kitchen, and he's now the predecessor. He's, he's the sixth patriarch. And so the, uh, the master uh, tells him that, you know, he better leave because uh, the monks and this head monk will certainly do him evil. And the teacher helps him to get away. He gets him down to the river and gets a boat for him, and, but then on leanings on his own. I mean, the whole story is very, um, what shall I say, symbolic. But um, finally, this head monk, after six months or so, it catches up with waning, and waning is hiding behind this huge rock, and he's thrown the robe that he inherited. He threw it over the rock, and he set his bowl on top of it. And um, uh, so comes a head monk, you know, and uh, he says, he knows that Waining is hiding behind the rock, and he tells him to come on out. And Waining says to him, if you can move the bowl and the robe from the rock, it will belong to you, and I'll come out. And that guy couldn't budge that bowl, not even half an inch. So finally he acquiesced and, and told uh, Waining that, please, would you be my teacher? And so Waining came out from behind the rock, lifted up the bowl, and handed it to him and said, this is evidence of my faith. That's how St. Paul means evidence of faith. Faith is something else. The evidence of his faith that that man could not lift that bowl even half an inch. What kind of faith is that? That's not a belief in something. 
faith then becomes something entirely different. You know, this is the kind of faith you should have. That's why you sit, huh? Anyway, <clears throat> to achieve what is essential through non-action. He, uh, waning didn't act. He hid behind a rock. Symbolic, huh? So, but anyway, Lao Tzu is difficult to understand. <clears throat> you know, this, uh, who you are, really, this outer function of an inner power. Yeah. You know, like a, uh, a sword would pass through the air, you know, and it doesn't cut the air. Does it? Or does it? Have you ever seen the air with a sword? With this, you know, if you take a saw, and the wind is really blowing hard, and you hold the saw up like that, it's surprising what you can see. Hmm? We used to do that when we were kids, because you can see the thing, that the air current going over and below the saw. Interesting. So when I say the sword passes through the air, it doesn't cut it? Well, I'm not so sure. <laughs> but it doesn't cut it. Not really. And it doesn't cut water either, though even though the water will flow over and under it. But it doesn't cut it, huh? But anyway, we should be like this water. We should be like this air, you know. Any cutting force, you know, just let it pass. Hmm? Just go through. And if you don't resist it, I mean, if you don't get all tense and, you know, uh, it's gone. You know, it's gone by. If you resist it, you've got it. If it goes by, you look at yourself, oh, you didn't break. No. But if you fight, you know, you do break. You know, it's the difference between an oak tree and a willow tree. The willow tree bends. Now, <clears throat> my understanding of judo is very short. But uh, I, as I understand some of it, uh, the basis of judo is, was on the teachings of Lao Tzu. I think in the Shaolin monastery where Bodhidharma went, they were doing his, his exercises. And uh, now, if I make a motion to strike you, you know, the natural reaction would be that you would defend yourself, you would oppose it. Hmm? So you're now the two are in opposition. Uh, you can oppose it in one of two ways. Either you're going to block my attack, or somehow I get through and hit you, and you're going to hit me in return. Hmm? That's how you resist. So, but in doing so, the muscles of your body become very taut because you don't want the impact to penetrate you, you know. So you're tense and you're hard and you're taut like a wall. There's no more water flowing. There's no more air flowing. Hmm? There's no serenity anymore. You have forgotten all about the inner 
you're here on the outside. Yeah. But now comes this judo, <clears throat> as I understand it, and I could be all wrong, but I've got to let it do go this way, otherwise the story won't hang together. <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, in judo, you don't fight. Uh, comes uh, the strike at you, and uh, you just cooperate with it. Okay. There is a different difference between resistance and taking something in or cooperating with it. When you're cooperating with it, you're not fighting it. You know. it's, uh, we could use this kind of an analogy. You have got one end of a rope, and I've got the other end of the rope, and we're both tugging away at the, this rope with all our might and all our main, the real tug-of-war, and all of a sudden I drop my end and walk away. What happens to you? You fall down. Of course. huh? So, don't fight. Just cooperate. You want to learn how to do this, you go to David. You treat the opponent the other person, as if it were a part of your own body. See, and you're just there, you're, you're in here, and you're not out here, you know. And the aggressor then begins to flail all around you, and pretty soon the aggressor is all worn out with all the flailing, because he loses his energy. Your energy is still very intact. In fact, if you do this right, they tell me, the energy that the aggressor was using against you, you know, becomes yours. Well, how many of us practice judo? Mm -hmm. Well, physically, not many. Anybody? Well, David knows something about it, though. But what do you do with your minds? I mean, judo is not only on a physical level. Here comes a mental level, huh? It doesn't have to be a, that kind of a blow. It can be the use of words. Hmm? Somebody says, <clears throat> I don't like you. You know, accept it. It's their privilege, you know? You're not here to be liked by everybody. Nobody ever promised you that. It's, it's, it's an error to even expect it. If you settle down in your right mind, you'd see this, huh? So when somebody says they don't like you or they intimated or something, you don't get all flustered and aggressive and you get all in a frenzy. What you simply do is empty your mind. So you don't like me. So, I recognize there's things about me that are not likable. Hmm. Of course, this comes back to, you know, being honest with yourself, of seeing yourself. And again, we come to this old master, do not deceive yourself. We're not all strawberries and cream. No. 
Now, in judo, one is not supposed to actually defeat the enemy. You let him defeat himself. Now, an empty mind cannot be defeated. No way. How do you talk to an empty mind? Hmm. Empty mind is as it is originally. Hmm. So you view living then with the original mind. <clears throat> and that's why you sit, isn't it? To find your original mind. There is a very famous story in Japan about a swordsman. He was a very, very great swordsman. No one was equal to him in all the land. One night on returning home, it was about two in the morning, he'd been out to a, he'd been celebrating after the match. And he went into a, his room, and he saw a rat coming out of the hole. And the rat came over and sat on his futon, on his bed. Hmm? And this made the swordsman very angry. That was his bed, and the rat had no business getting on his bed. So he tried to frighten the rat and make him run away, but the rat didn't move. And this puzzled this swordsman. He could frighten the strongest of men by shaking the sword or his fist, you know, here is this big bully, you know, could frighten anybody. But this rat? No. So he picked up this little toy sword, little wooden toy sword, with which his daughter played, and, you know, she was learning how to be a sword, and he used it to strike at the rat, and he struck hard. And the rat moved about half an inch, you know. So when the swordsman came down with the sword, he missed. You know? But the toy sword broke all into pieces. That was his strength, and that was his anger. And the rat just sat there silent, just silent. The beady eyes were just watching him. And now this man was a little disturbed. So being disturbed, a little fear crept in. And he decided this was not an ordinary rat. You know, uh, <clears throat> we are strange this way. Uh, you see a rope in the, in the twilight or in the dusk. It's pretty dark, you know, and you see a rope and, and you see the end of it there. And you know, it's a snake. And there's a little fear. You know, fear has already come in. You don't, you know, it's a snake. And uh, I remember once upon a time, way back when, I'd gone camping, and there was still some snow on the ground. But I was all wrapped up in a sleeping bag, and I'd had hot stones at my feet and stuff like that, you know. And I was awakened in the middle of the night by this animal sniffing at me. And I thought, that's a bear. 
I could smell them. It was just, you know, wild animal smell. It's a bear. I, to this day, don't really know what it was, but in my mind, it was a bear. And I didn't do anything. I just very silently just didn't move, and he went away. But, and you know, people that, uh, uh, if you're looking out the window at night and something moves out there or something, and there's a patch of white, you know, they're very sure that there's a man standing out there waiting to get in. This is a patch of white. He's got a white shirt on. You know, fear does things to us. Hmm? Anyway, so here's this swordsman, and his fear has crept in, and he decided this was no ordinary rat because he had never, ever missed before. So now he went and he got his own sword. And uh, he's a little bit afraid of the rat now. It became a very uncommon rat. And the more uncommon, the more extraordinary it became, the more his fear grew. And then it occurred to him that if he struck at this rat, maybe his sword might break also. After, it, was no, it was no toy, but if it did break, then for him there was no way out of this mess. You know, There would be this insult and the infamy of a rat beating him, overcoming him. Yeah? So he struck, but very cautiously. See? This caution shows fear, you know. If there's no fear, you're not cautious. You know, you go right ahead and you blunder into anything and everything because you're not afraid. So we act, you know, the work is done, but when we're afraid, we, we very cautiously, you know, first day on a job, you're going to type these things and we're very cautious. We very slow down on the typewriter. We're very cautious, huh? A little bit of something in there, hmm? Uh, so today, of all days, and for all the times that he had really swung the sword, today his hand shook a little. He was cautious. And the sword fell from his hand and broke. And the rat moved a quarter of an inch and sat there and looked at him. So now the next morning, after these two sitting and staring at each other all night, <laughs> he made it known throughout the town that if anyone had a clever cat, they should bring it. And so the wealthiest man in town brought his cat. She had a reputation of being an excellent rat killer. And this swordsman, still frightened, I mean, now he's had no sleep either. He sat in there, sat all night long, staring at this extraordinary rat. He told this owner of the cat all about it. And when the owner of the cat heard the full story, he also became frightened. You know, if the greatest swordsman in the land broke his sword over the rat and the rat hadn't stirred, what chance did the cat have? Huh? And the cat got wind of this, of course. You know, <laughs> they do <laughs> pick us up. Huh? And she became frightened. And she began to plot 
and plan all the various ways she could kill this rat, how she could capture it and come upon it and so on. And at the same time, she's plotting and planning this going through her mind. She's also thinking, why am I doing all this preparation mentally? I mean, rats just naturally run away from me. I'm a cat. Hmm? But then she said to herself, but this is not an ordinary rat. Huh? So I might as well be prepared. Huh? Yeah. So she stood at the entrance to the room, and she looked in, and she saw this rat, and she trembled at the sight. The rat sat very still and silent, surrounded by these broken swords. <laughs> and now, to the cat's consternation, instead of she advancing stealthily to this rat, the rat began to advance. <laughs> Huh? Never, never could she have anticipated such a move that the rat would advance on her. So she vamoosed. She got out immediately, immediately. Cat gone. You all know the story, huh? Oh, okay. Now the swordsman was even more frightened. I mean, after all. So he sent a request to, shall we say, the king of the town, the, whoever, you know, the shogun, wherever he is. Please send the palace cat. See, we know that the palace cat is the very best. And uh, so the king decided he'd better do this, you know. And before leaving the uh, palace, however, the cat told the king, aren't you ashamed? to send me to kill an ordinary mouse. I'm not an ordinary cat. I'm a palace cat. I'm the king's cat. Because she too had heard the rumors about this rat being something other than ordinary. Huh? And she was in her way trying to get the king to dismiss this whole thing and not send her. Yeah, so. But the king answered, you know, uh, it is no ordinary cat, and it is I who am fearful whether or not you will return alive even. So I am the one that is worried. So, so anyway, the cat was taken to the swordsman's house, and she entered the room, and she pounced on the rat with all her might, but she missed him. See? And instead, her head struck the wall, and so she went back to the palace with the blood streaming down her face. And the rat was still sitting there, very serene and very silent. Anyway, in this town also, there was a magician, a master magician. And he had a cat that was a master of all cats. And the palace cat then recommended that this magician's cat, the master cat, should be employed. Perhaps she might have a method of taking this rat. Hmm? So the master cat was called in, and all the cats of the town gathered around the house to see what would happen. You know? It was going, now, you know, it's a very decisive game. Oh, yeah. If this cat lost, cats forever would lose to rats. It was this kind of a precedent now. Hmm? 
saw. The rat sat where he was. The master cat came into the room, and just, but just before she went in, the other cats advised her, you know, what she should do and what she shouldn't do, and she was getting all this advice from all these other cats, and she just meowed back, you know, you fools, making plans to kill a rat. You don't need any method. To be a cat is the very art of catching rats. Hmm? Now, the swordsman had also warned this master cat that this was no ordinary rat. And if she failed, not only would there be a new precedent about rats catching cats, but he would have to leave his home forever. And the cat simply said, well, what's so great about this rat, you know? Please, keep your calm, you know? And so the cat went in and caught the rat and brought it out. And all the cats gathered round to find out how she had done it. And she stood there and she said, the fact that I am a cat is enough. Hmm? Rats have always cooperated with cats. <laughs> cats have always caught rats. Hmm? This is our nature. The plans that the rest of you made only got in the way. I could catch the rat because I am a cat. Hmm? Now, I am a human being. You can all say that, huh? I am a human being. Being a human being, original mind is here. Hmm. Original power is here. Original will is here. Original love is here. If there is a state of non-action, you know, then you can shout it. I am a cat. I am a human being. I read a story once upon a time, in days long ago, when they had sailing ships, and an American, and he was supposed to be, I guess, the first American that had ever landed at Hong Kong. And uh, when he got off the boat right away, the first thing he saw was two men fighting down there on the wharf. And so he stood there for a while and watched him because right away his attention was, was caught by something unusual. Both men brought their fists right up to the face of the other, but they didn't touch him. Just right up. Huh? They hurled abuses at each other. <laughs> you know, and they kicked each other, but didn't touch. They made a lot of noise, but they didn't touch. There was no actual striking of the other with all the commotion that was going on. So he stood there, and he watched him, and he watched him, and after about 10 minutes, this American asked his guide, you know, what's happening? 
They're just going all through these motions. And the guide said, oh, this is fighting Chinese style. Yeah? But said the American, it's not an actual fight. These men come close to hitting each other, and then they fall back. So the guide explained, for the past several thousand years, it has been the belief in our country that he who attacks first loses. Hmm? Both are all in this frenzy, this hullabaloo, and they're waiting for the other to strike. They're waiting for the other one to lose control of himself. And when you lose control of yourself, you will strike. And as soon as one of them strikes, the whole crowd will disperse. Yeah? They know who's going to be the winner. The gestures and the yelling and all that are only to instigate, to provoke the other into action. There's a lot of truth in that, you know? Funny little stories to try to get across something of what Lao Tzu was trying to impart. Hmm? Because his reasoning is not our ordinary reasoning. And he says, you know, that the greater the ability to fight, the less will be the eagerness to fight. If there's a lot of eagerness to fight, there's a lot of aggressiveness, but not much ability. When a man's strength and a man's power, that is human being, man or woman, you know, when their power is complete, then there's no fight at all. There is maturity. There is serenity. You know, it's like Jesus, at the end, he didn't fight back. You know, we could look at this another way, too. Let's, let's talk about atheists for a minute. Atheists have been denying God for thousands of years. There's no God. It's as if they stand before the gates of the Almighty, demanding to be told if God is or he is not. You see, I could be a good evangelist. <laughs> you know, and they're yelling this. And there's no response. See? Doesn't God feel that it's a little bit cowardly not to prove himself? But he doesn't. He's silent. Lao Tzu says he is silent because he is the supreme power. There is no resistance. All of God is action and non-action. The atheist that claims from the mountaintop, way, climbs this whole mountain and he yells up there, there is no God and comes back this echo, there is no God. Uh -huh. 
God cooperating. Remember that the power cooperates. The greatest power in the universe cooperates. We forget it. We're like the kids in a Bible class. The minister's been teaching them. You know. And when he gets through, I, he asked, it was a little boys' class, and he asked the boys if they understood all that he had told them about forgiveness. Mm -hmm. If someone slaps you, will you forgive him? You know, one little boy said, well, I might if he's bigger than me, but it would be very difficult if he's smaller than me. <laughs> hmm? That's our usual reasoning. How about cooperating? You know, we could experiment. It wouldn't hurt us any for one week. Seven days, seven days only. You might practice a kind of a cooperation. Happen what may. You're not going to put up this resistance. You're going to sit in your gut and you're going to cooperate. Hmm? You know, it might be that if we put our minds to it and we practiced this a little bit, Lao Tzu's words might give up their hidden secrets. Because then in trying to experiment with it, you would be moving from the words to the experience. Hmm? You know, we have, really, we stop and look at it, we have such ridiculous ways of dissipating our energies. I can say, I walk along the street, and a child laughs at me, or I'm driving home from here at night, and a bunch of you name them are in a car racing down the road, and they pull up next to me and make some kind of remark. You know, what do I do? Resist it? Answer them back again? Or do I allow non-action to step in? Lao Tzu, you know, uh, he was walking down the street one day in his little village, and somebody threw some rocks at him. But he didn't even look back to see who the troublemaker was. He just ignored him. And it wasn't very long before this troublemaker came running up to him saying, you could at least look back so that my efforts were not in vain. Yeah? Well, why would one throw rocks in the first place? Well, they want attention, huh? Well, why would one say not nice things about somebody else? Attention? To feel a little bigger? You know, it's a defense mechanism lots of times. Something within themselves they can't handle. Something is amiss. You know. And you're going to join that? So this Lao Tzu, he just simply said to this little troublemaker, sometimes by mistake our own nail hurts us. 
And he tells a story to this troublemaker. Once I was sitting in a boat, and another boat, which was empty, bumped into mine. What could I do? Huh? There was nobody to yell at. You know? Had there been a man in the other boat, there would have been trouble, because I would have yelled at him. But because there was no man in the boat, and it bu the boat bumped my boat, and all of a sudden I saw something. And I decided that if I not, did not do anything when the other boat was empty, I didn't have to do anything if there was a man in the boat. What difference? What difference? Whether he did it deliberately or accidentally, just keep yourself out of the problem. Now go away. Well, the next day the troublemaker came back to him. And he says, I couldn't sleep all night. What kind of a man are you? Hmm? You know, please do something for me. To say something so I can get rid of this anxiety that I've had ever since I threw the rock. This is how we live. We have hopes and expectations. We expect, if I'm nice to somebody, I expect to be treated very well in return, and I'm disturbed if I'm not. This is the coin of our realm. This is our give and take. This is our bargaining. If I give a gift and it is not accepted, to whom does a gift belong. Hmm? If it's not accepted, I don't know what to do with it. My mind is all thumbs, as it were, and I can't think straight anymore, like this little troublemaker. Do something to, so I can get rid of this anxiety. Do something, say something, so that I am no longer at fault. Do something, say something, do something, act. Well, Lao Tzu doesn't. He just sits there with the original mind, non-action, serene. If one is always prepared for an attack, you know, we call it carrying a chip on the shoulder, you know, you're going to find an enemy very easily. The universe is very large. It satisfies everyone's needs. You look for an enemy, you will find one. If we begin to look for cooperation, this also will return to us. He who sets out with the feeling of cooperation will begin to find friends, because whatever it is that we seek, we find. Mm -hmm. Whatever we get is of our own seeking. Yeah. And then, of course, <clears throat> we remember the words, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all else will be added unto you. So what is all else? What's all the rest that's going to be added? 
Well, of course, your, your mind jumps immediately to all the little things you want. But seek ye first the heaven, you know, and all else will be added unto you. And by that, all else is meant a non-action, non-discrimination, non-judgment, non-purpose, non-ego. Thou. That's all else. Yeah. I mean, after all, so you think that I'm going to look for the kingdom of God first and I'm going to have lots of money, the abundance. Huh? What good is that going to do you in heaven? Nothing. They got more gold up there than we got down here. They didn't even pave their streets in it. We can't do that. <laughs> Lao Tzu teaches the wisdom of life, not the bartering. Hmm? In, in this struggle for enlightenment, you know, he shows what is to be avoided. Pretense, attachments, greed. Because nothing is a greater obstacle to self-realization than self-conceit. And it comes in very subtle forms. One who tries to be somebody loses his stance. You know, Lao Tzu says, someone on tiptoe is not steady. Hmm? One who brags, extols his merit, has already lost it. Otherwise, he wouldn't need to brag, would he? No. Arrogance is followed by a crash. And then what was easy becomes difficult. Heights ascended turn into our downfall. But now what had been a very short way now stretches out endlessly. To be very clever and cunning you know, as one person once said, I read it somewhere, he was so slick he could have slid uphill. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, you know, you don't fool anybody except yourself. And we come back to this thing, you know, do not deceive yourself. So the thing to do is not to look at the world and what others think about us, because what difference does it make? We look at ourselves honestly. It is our becoming perfect that perfects the world. If you are in a state of non-action, you will see that this world is perfect. It really is. Has never been anything but. Yeah? It's, you know, there's a dust. You know, in the Genesis, it talks about a dust that rose. That's in the second creating process. You know, the dust of envy and greed in this instance of pretense that keep us from seeing the perfection of ourselves and of the world. Hmm? In a non-action, nothing remains undone.
Well, anyway, um, I think we might practice the experiment a little bit of cooperating with things around us. You know, there's that little story, an anecdote, you know, uh, of the teacher asking the student, if a million objects come to you, what do you do? And the little student answers, a yellow object is not short, a green object is not long, why should I interfere? Cooperation, huh? And see if it makes your life any easier. So we can learn a few things from this Lao Tzu and his Tao Te Ching. You might try reading it and just taking a sentence here and there and working with it. One word a thing. And now, may the peace and the power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christed consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another. And I do thank you. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.